0: up on today's show, Conservative leadership hopeful Jean Charest to talk about the first debate and the one that happens tomorrow night. Will the tone be turned down at all? The federal government has come up with a plan to help farmers, but critics say, you know what, it's a good start. We'll take it, but it's certainly not going to be enough. And we'll have a discussion about the window of opportunity to address increasing drought. you know, the six candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party will face off on a stage in Edmonton tomorrow in the first official debate of this campaign. But there was one earlier this week that uh, made a lot of headlines, made a lot of news. Let's join uh, Jean Charest now, um, CPC candidate for the leadership. Uh, Mr. Charest, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you very much, Shane. Uh, so so the debate last week, I mean, obviously it provided a lot of headlines, as I said, a lot of sound bites, a lot of conflict. Um, I don't know if those who watched though really learned too much about the candidates and their positions. Do you feel your message was heard by people who tuned in?
1: I think yeah, I think it was heard in in good part, you know, and when I explain or tell people why it is that I am running to be leader of the Conservative Party because you know, the common thread of my whole political life shapes in Canada and the very deep belief and love I have for the country and the country's very divided now, very Balkanized, and and that's the responsibility of a prime minister to keep the country united. We're way below our potential economically, internationally. and know, our voice isn't heard in the world. I think those are the things that I wanted to convey and convey why I want to be the leader of the party because I believe I can unite it. I believe in this and the values of our party. I think the country Shay is looking for a national alternative to the Liberals and a political party able to bridge. Uh, the regions in the country you know alberta quebec and other parts that's what canadians want and so uh and so that's what i had to say last week now you know the debate uh, in itself was disappointing because of the attacks frankly you know pretty brutal attacks from mr but that's fine i mean that's you know that's life uh we'll have a debate tomorrow night and i think Tomorrow night, it uh, falls on all of us to talk about the future and about the policies that we want for the future of the country. That's what the discussion should
0: be about tomorrow night. That's where I want to be, and I'm I'm hoping that Mr. Poitier will be there too. That's the question. Uh, with these debates and the way that the first one went and what people are worried about is going to happen next time, I mean, some of the candidates on the stage uh, at, at the last debate, you know, Aitchison and uh, and Babber, saying, you know what, we can't do this. We're tearing down the party. So I'm wondering, is there a fear in you going these debates and, and the way that the first one went, that, you know what, in the end, you're doing the party a disservice. Not you, but but, but, but all the candidates, the way that it went, um, doing a disservice to the party and actually just providing fodder to the Liberals. The Liberals seem to be the clear winner in the last debate.
1: Well, I hope they're not holding their breath because they're not going to be the winners if I become the leader of the party. But you're you're making very important points, Shay. If we want to unite the country, we have to unite the party. We have to choose a leader able to unite the party, and that's where I stand. And, uh, and then we have to uh, be able to offer a pretty compelling vision of the future of the country, which includes every part of the country. We're, you know, the, there's a, a, out there in Canada right now, there are a lot of political orphans who are just clamoring for a political alternative that's fiscally conservative and who will lead the country out of this COVID period with the policies that promote economic growth and, and bring the party together. And they, those political orphans, by the way, they're everywhere. They're in every political party, including ours. And they, they turn to us and they're, they're sort of looking at us and asking themselves, are you up to the job? And the next leader, you know, if we've had enough of losing in 15, 19, and 21, the next leader has to be able to win. Everywhere in the country, I I want based on the strong support we have in Alberta, I want to win in the GTA. I want to win where we have four seats out of fifty-three, and no seats in Lower Mainland of British Columbia. No seats in Montreal. There's 32 block MPs in Quebec that I will be delighted to retire, and and give us a national majority government. That's what's at stake here.
0: And obviously, I know you want to win and you want to be the leader of the Conservative Party. I guess the question I have, and I think other people have too, is, is there room for Jean Charest's approach to leading the Conservative Party within that party? You mentioned the trucker convoy and you got booed by the crowd that was in attendance. You went after Paulia for supporting the trucker convoy. Lewis went after him for not supporting them enough. Um, Is there room for Jean Charest's view of what conservatism is in that party these days?
1: Well, I I defend the conservative values. And what are those values, Sheik? Fiscal conservatism, a market-based economy, economic policies that promote growth, including resource sector, the oil, gas pipeline, the mining sector, supporting families, and yes, supporting the rule of law and law and order. It's pretty simple, Shay. You can't be in the privileged position of being a member of the House of Commons, making laws for others, telling them you have to obey your laws, and then support an illegal blockade. I'm, I feel very strongly about that. That's a question of principle. And you know, sometimes it's more popular shade to do the, the, you know, the short-term thing, but you know what? In my lifetime, I haven't been, uh, that's not been the way that I, uh, I've been behaved. I believe in leadership based on principle and strong a strong conservative value. of the rule of law and law and order for me is pretty fundamental. The other value is the way we practice federalism. Which is good news for Albertans because uh, I've what I've seen in my lifetime when this country's worked well is when we've had national governments where Albertans were at the table and, and we got big things done. That's when Canada is at its best.
0: The focus, of course, once this is over and done and whoever's left standing becomes leader of the Conservative Party, will be to lead this party into a general election, which could happen, as you know, with a minority parliament, you know v- relatively soon. Um, first of all, can, can yeah. the party can you unite whatever's left after these debate cycles and this campaign and bring everybody together and, and focus on that? And what is the focus in taking down a Trudeau government that has one, I mean, three consecutive mandates, two of them, albeit being mi- minorities?
1: And it isn't so much that they've won. We lost. I mean, it's, the Conservatives lost those campaigns. Mr. Trudeau has the lowest level of support in the history of any government in Canada the minority government. And you're right, your instinct is right. There. They did this agreement to spend more money with the NDP. But you know what? If there's a change in leadership in the Liberal Party, which will happen, if I'm convinced I become leader, Mr. Trudeau will lead. There'll be a leadership race. We could be within a campaign very rapidly. And uh, and so we need to be ready and we need a leader who's led national campaign, who has won uh, campaigns as a leader of the party, which I've done uh, several times. I know how to organize that. And we're going to have to get organized pretty rapidly, which means focusing on what our agenda is, as opposed to walking into campaigns where we always get pulled in a different direction mm-hmm. by the liberals who sucker punch us on the on the all all of the classic issues. We know what they are. They're abortion and gun control and health care. And as soon as they're down in the polls, they drop that out and we script we we play to the script. She, I mean the conservatives could walk right into it. Well no next time, no. I'm that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer my ideas, our ideas as a political party, as a united party, and we'll form a national government. And Alberta will be right at the middle of that. Based on the strong support we've had from Alberta and the West, we're going to go out there and get support in places that will put us in national government territory, which includes, uh, you know, the GTA in Toronto, but also Quebec and, and the Maritime.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the job. I think we all recognize that as a conservative yeah. government to get elected nationally. That That's that's where it starts. That's where it ends. Uh, Mr. Shray, I appreciate your time today. And, of course, we'll follow the campaign as it goes along. Thank you very much, Shay. Hope to talk to you soon. You bet. Appreciate your time. What about farmers? We've heard, you know, the, the horror stories about what farmers across this country are having to deal with right now. Soaring costs, of course, but they're getting it on all fronts. Fuel prices are up. Fertilizer prices are up. Herbicide prices are up. I mean, you name it. Everything is up. It's not good. Um, the federal government, uh, under immense pressure, decided to adjust their plans around this. Last month, they announced that Canadian farmers could expect the advanced payments program uh, to get them all of their money at once up front instead of the usual way of doing things, which is to have it distributed in two installments. It's all going to be all given at once up front. That's the change so far. Now, apparently, federal government says they're still in discussion with um, uh, uh, producers and the rest, to see if there's other things that can be done. But that's what's on the table at this point. Uh, Joining us to talk about that, and there's a lot of people that aren't happy about this plan, I think more needs to be done. We're joined by Tristan Skolrud, who is an Associate Professor of Economics in the University of Saskatchewan's Agriculture Department. Tristan, uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. Yeah, like I say, a lot of critics, a lot of people saying, you know, okay, well, this is a step forward. Fine, we understand that, but it's not nearly enough. And it, in some ways, it actually doesn't make sense. How do you feel about this change Just basically take the, the two-payment, two-installment plan and make it all at once up front?
2: understand where it's coming from. Just like you said in the lead up there, you know, farmers are under a lot of pressure from all sides, um, you know, not least of which is the uh, the war in Ukraine that's driving up uh, natural gas prices, uh, you know, the, the extra tariffs on natural gas and, and fertilizer exports from Russia and Belarus, which is especially having an impact on Eastern Canadian farmers, um, and it's just—it's very tough, so I understand why they want to do what they're doing, because you know, farmers are having a tough time, and it's important to try and get them some relief before seeding
0: starts. Yeah, I mean, the input costs are up, so you give them money up front, and I guess the input costs get better, but even some of the producers said, you know what, changing when we take on debt is not necessarily mm-hmm. the best way of doing things, thank you, but we're still taking on <laughs> debt.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and this is where the hard part gets there, you know, because if if we were just looking at a couple of things, you know, like this if we were just looking at Ukraine by itself, then maybe a program like this would make a little bit of sense, but the problem is is that the economy as a whole is undergoing some of the worst inflationary pressure that we've seen in what 30 40 years depending on the estimates. Yep. And um, you know, something I mentioned in a, in a previous article is that when an economy is going through something like that, the last thing you want to do is make more money available to people. And as, as tempting as it is, because you know you've got a whole wide swath of the population, and it's not just farmers. You know, it's, it's your average, everyday people. You know, if you're listening to this radio show in your car, you're also being infect, affected by inflation. But the solution is not to put more money into the hands of people because
0: that makes inflation worse. Well, that's an argument you can make on on any sector, I mean, just economies in general, right?
2: Exactly, yes, absolutely. And and the ag sector, while their need is certainly um, well known and well understood, especially by us in Western Canada, um, it does not necessarily excuse the fact that it could certainly make inflation worse.
0: So, uh, what's the? I mean, we, we like you mentioned the tariff, uh, but but I mean yeah. that's a, that's another issue where the fact that's another cost that's being downloaded directly onto the producer. I mean, is is there a better way of doing that? It's massive. It's thirty five percent. So when you're talking right. about fertilizer costs, that's a huge added expense to the producer directly.
2: Right. Absolutely. And as far as your question, is there a better way of doing that? You know, that, that is such a difficult question because the government, in a sense, is caught between a rock and a hard place. They need to be tough on Russia. And the way to be tough on Russia without actually starting a hot war is to be tough on them economically. But that creates these sort of domestic pinch points at home that are very, very hard to circumvent, which is, like I said, my guess is what, why this change to the advanced payments program is happening right now.
0: So when we take a look at the situation where we are at this point in time, is it, is it, does, when we talk about inflation, sorry for making a mess of this, inflation often burns itself out, right? The high cost of things eventually causes a drop in in prices because people just can't pay it. Do you see, where? how do you see this changing for, for farmers in this country?
2: Um, you know, it's it's going to be rough. I, most forecasts from the Bank of Canada don't expect inflation to come down until 2023, and the hard part is, is that just like you say, there's not really a whole lot we can do about it, other than ratcheting up interest rates making it seem like less of an idea to invest in things right you want things to cool off and this advanced payment thing it's it's has the potential to take this whole sect of farmers that otherwise wouldn't have been able to participate in the market this year and say hey guess what now you can participate and once they do prices are only going to go up more, and if that happens, inflation lasts longer. So it's one of those things that you just kind of have to get through, which is why inflation is such a difficult economic problem to
0: solve. Yeah, it is, and uh, I, I, like you say, everybody's got all kinds of ideas. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Tristan, thank you so much for your time yep. today. I appreciate you joining us. Yep, you bet. Thanks for having me, Shane. Yep, yeah, thank you. That is Tristan Skolrud, who is an associate professor of economics in the University of Saskatchewan's Agriculture Department. It is definitely. Um, it's on the minds of everybody right now. It's interesting. We were talking about um, federal support for farmers and uh, whether it's going to help or not. And hey, as we as we said and as the guest said and as all of the critics who have been talking about this have said, yes, it'll help. It'll help. Basically, we're talking about increasing um, the... Uh, The payments to once up front rather than twice. But, you know, but it's not perfect. Is anything perfect? This is a step forward, but there's lots more that needs to be done. Whenever we talk about this situation, uh, I get a lot of texts from, uh, we have a lot of farmers that listen uh, and I love you and I appreciate you texting in uh, to point out the fact that, you know what, things are really, really bad and for a number of reasons. you got fuel costs, fertilizer costs, herbicide costs. And then we get the text from the listeners saying, you know what, bottom line is we've got, we got a drought anyway. You heard it two this morning coming in from southern Alberta saying we're putting seed in and we don't even know if anything's going to grow. Um, for, you know, and on top of all of the increased cost, um, they're dealing with that as well. You know, we were talking about all the snow in Calgary yesterday, right? There's the big snowstorm. Uh, I got a text from a listener saying, I'm a farmer south of Lethbridge and I would love snow like that. It is so dry; drought-like conditions persist, and um, we remember what happened last summer with the drought, the wildfires that it sparked in BC. This is all one long drought. It's gone on for some time now in Western Canada. And We're going to talk about that with Margot Hurlbert, who is the Canada Research Chair in Climate Change, Energy, and Sustainability at the University of Virginia. Margot, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, and thank you for having me. You know this current conditions and like I said just this morning getting texts from farmers down around the Lethbridge area down around the US border saying you know we've this drought is just it hasn't ended we're really worried about what it's gonna look like this is one long drought right it's been going on for some time now
3: it has and the mega drought it's not only occurring here in Alberta and Saskatchewan but in the United States Midwest and in Chile Argentina and some of South America where we're connected in our weather patterns by our ENSO, our La Niña and El Niña.
0: What do they call it? A once in 20 year event? Is that what we typically would see a situation like this arise?
3: Yes, so we're in many areas in a once in 20 year event that has significantly impacted our economies. Even this past week our premier here in Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, identified the drought as the reason Saskatchewan's GDP didn't perform as well as anticipated last year.
0: Um, It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but these 1 in 100 year floods and fires and 1 in 20 year droughts, they seem to happen a little more often than 1 in every 100 or every 20 years. It seems like that window is getting shorter.
3: It is, and the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change released its report last summer and it dropped a red flag about climate change, saying that droughts that used to occur in regions once every 10 years are projected to incre- in- incur in an increasingly frequent manner uh, on the trajectory of climate change that we're heading on to be more than four times a decade. So what used to be once every 10 could be as frequent as four times a decade.
0: And I mean, there's all kind of evidence with what we saw last summer in BC, all the rest. It seems like we're well on our way down the path and mitigation needs to be something that we're, we're talking about. What should we focus on? You know, where do you see big changes coming for the way we operate, you know, all kinds of industry, but specifically agriculture uh, in Western Canada? Um, Power
3: production and transportation are huge, and as we can see, we've got electric vehicles and hydrogen cell uh, vehicles coming into the fore, which will impact agriculture as these technologies take over our agricultural uh, um, vehicles, right? So that's kind of separate and apart, but within the agriculture industry, it's increasingly uh, being seen as important to have soil store carbon. And to do so, there's a whole bunch of great ways that that can help with this. That the federal government's starting to put dollars behind, and that's always been the problem: is the public benefits of certain things like wetlands haven't been recognized and paid for because uh, they're public. So farmers have had to take on burdens that are uh, public when they're having a hard time meeting their balance sheet and making a profit and being expected to do things that aren't paying their, their costs directly.
0: Um, so what do we need to do? It seems like we're very reactionary. It seems like a lot of what we do is sort of we're going to respond and we're going to support those affected and and then we might make some changes after the fact. Do we need to get out in front of some of these events? Like you say, we, we can see the writing on the wall and we can see what's happening. Are there things we can do ahead of time?
3: Absolutely. So instead of reacting to a drought as an uh, emergency, we're increasingly getting into anticipatory policies and practices that prevent uh, large-scale damaging drought, and that's kind of where we need to go with this. So thinking even historically, we prevent dust storms by having shelter belts and a variety of uh, mechanisms that prevent what happened in the dirty 30s, right? So we need to revisit, well, what is it that we need today? Because things have changed dramatically, the seeds, the drought-tolerant crops, uh, everything has changed. So we're not, it's not the same as the 1930s. We're in a new reality. And what does that look like on the ground for preventing uh, wide-scale drought? And what can we do?
0: Are, those, are, are, are we doing any of those things that you're talking about? I mean, we, like you say, we know that uh, the situation is at hand and we know what we can do. Is that happening on a large enough scale?
3: Oh, absolutely! Uh, there's some great uh, things that are happening with uh, grazing patterns that helps protect soil and carbon and soil in soil and our grasslands that ranchers have been doing forever and are improving year by year. Cover cropping is something, and of course, Mintill has happened. So we've really made strides in in adapting to what has been a drying climate uh, in the American and Canadian Midwest area. So these things need to uh, be upscaled, so to speak, so that that all agricultural producers can benefit and access these types of technologies.
0: Um, you mentioned water in the piece that I read, and I think, you know, obviously it becomes more and more important as we go through periods that we're going through right now. Are we doing enough to protect our water? That's something that I think we've talked about before and there's, you know, I've even heard people talk about the next World War is going to be fought over water. Um, Are we doing enough to be protective of our water that we do have?
3: Yeah, water is a fascinating, it's a fascinating area. Water quality is so important to our communities and to uh, all of the people living in these lands and we're getting better and better. So the four R nitrate agricultural management program, it has existed for quite some time, and the federal government and the provincial governments are starting to put money behind implementing it. And it's really important because it reduces the phosphorus and nitrogen that's on our lands that gets into our water. So this is increasingly important. Not just for reducing emissions like nitrous oxide and all the greenhouse gases but for reducing costs and the studies have shown that it does reduce costs dramatically for agricultural producers as well as mitigate. So these programs and practices are increasingly being taken up and increasingly the governments are providing support and funding for that.
0: Uh, and the other one I wanted to ask you about is soil. Um, are, we, are we are we protecting our soil? I know that's just as important, right?
3: Oh, yes. And increasingly, the federal government has a task force looking exactly at the question. The Canadian Council for Academies will be releasing a report where we're looking at, well, how much can forests and soil and wetlands, how much carbon can they absorb and how much can they take on of Canada's commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions into the future? And what exactly, can we achieve net zero in the agricultural industry itself by using carbon that's captured and stored in soil and recognizing its contributions to people and valuing it enough that it becomes a profit center for farmers? into the future right
0: yeah exactly great discussion Uh, margo thanks so much for your time i appreciate you joining us oh thank you so much for having me that is margo hurlbert margo is the canada research chair in climate change energy and sustainability at the university of regina and yeah i mean just uh, i get the text from uh all the listeners uh you know down south it sounds especially bad like uh the drowkilly conditions and they've been going on for some time so um